Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black, CMG. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus at the University of Exeter. He is, without a doubt, the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today. And we are discussing today about his book, Geopolitics and the Quest for Dominance. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? Uh, My thesis is an attempt to provide the history and present discussion of geopolitics, and in particular, uh, to take aim at the uh, literature of the so-called critical geopolitics. And I try and do the both of those t- by going back in the sense of both conceptually, but also in looking at particular geopolitical uh, elements, such as the struggle between Britain and France, and also the geopolitics of the two world wars. What is your definition of geopolitics? Ah, well, that's a very good question, because in a sense, as with my work on strategy, which we've already discussed, what I'm trying to do is move more broadly than the actual term. I mean, as you'll know, just as strategy was a term in the West uh, devised in the late 18th century and essentially used from the 19th century. So geopolitics, as you probably know, as advanced in particular by Friedrich Ratzel, uh, is something that we would usually date till the very end of the 19th century with more particularly the great practitioners, in particular Haushofer and Mackinder, being early 20th century. What I'm arguing is, as with strategy, you can, or or for that matter, enlightenment, if you wish to use that term, you can have the phenomenon without the vocabulary. Professor Black, uh, why do you believe most historians ignore or, or at best belittle the concept of geopolitics? I think one of the great problems in the bulk of the Western tradition, actually the French are a very good exception here, but in the bulk of the Western tradition, most historians don't have any geographical training, certainly no formal geographical training, and many of them have absolutely no interest in in geography. So you see this farcical idea in which people talk about um, Atlantic history and know absolutely nothing about the currents of the Atlantic or the islands of the Atlantic or anything to do with the Atlantic. Um, So I would say that the same is unfortunately the case with geography as a whole. Now, interestingly enough, in France, there is a practice of teaching geography and history together. And as a result of that, the notion of the pays, uh, the distinctive part of France and how that both 
uh, contributes in terms of a physical and a human environment is quite uh, strong in France. And there's a German equivalent, uh, the Landesgeschichte, the history of the particular German region. Um, but I'm afraid to say that um, you know the Anglo-American tradition is very poor on geography. Now, this is ironic because at one stage, and you can think, for example, of Frederick Turner in the United States, um, there was a distinguished school of both um, what you might call American historical geographers and at the very least American historians that knew some geography. Uh, but that tends to have ebbed considerably. Geography itself has become relatively inconsequential as an academic subject in the United States over the last 60 years. Historians have sort of gone off on identity fixes and so on. So that, you know, though there are some honorable exceptions, most historians know very little about geography. And the same, I'm afraid, has happened in Britain. In Britain, the standard A-levels, that uh, final high school exam pattern for most historians, um, is either to do history, English and a modern language, or to do um, history and economics um, and maybe uh, another social science. So that's one element. But a second element, which is in a way even more disappointing, and I know this is going to sound very paradoxical, but that a lot of modern geographers don't know much about geography. What they're essentially obsessed with is identity wars of their own type, uh, often a slightly different vocabulary to those of historians, but nevertheless, the same sort of pattern. And in particular, the kind of traditional type of geography in which you would look for physical relationships between those uh, uh, the physical environment and the human environment, that has been downplayed. So a lot of modern geographers are more intent upon uh, attempting to discern, well, no, 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 that's being too kind, asserting supposed geographies of sexual or gender or social or racial discrimination or identity, rather than actually looking at the hard work of trying to study the relationships between um, physical and human phenomena. In the book, there is a dis extensive discussion of um, early modern or even, even medieval China and its relations with the borderlands and the steppe people of the borderlands. Can you explicate that a little bit? Uh, yes, I think that uh, one of the more interesting areas in which we've looked at Eurasian geopolitics over the last few decades is we've taken the earlier work of which Halford Mackinder is most famous, which is in a sense a um, an outward-looking or Western conceptualization of Eurasia with the idea of just to remind listeners that there was a sort of pivot of world history located roughly in um, uh, in the sort of in the area of modern Russia and sort of the, the core of modern Russia and that that was trying to reach out to the oceans and that therefore there was a dichotomy and an inherent tension between the continental power that would, would, would dominate the continent and uh, that which was oceanic so Mackinder giving his famous lecture in 1904 considered conceptualize that as a struggle between Russia and Britain with India as part of the British Empire and Japan as Britain's ally. And China was a relatively minor player um, in that. In fact, China um, in 1904 was in some respects um, victim might be going too strong, but certainly was, was weak in comparison to the expansionist 
um, pretensions of Russia, Japan and, and Britain. Now, I think what we've seen in recent decades is the writing down of Chinese history um, has been something which is being unfortunate for its wider implications for an understanding of Eurasian geopolitics. And instead of presenting the Chinese as either victims or in terms of some narrative in which China is inherently Pacific, uh, peaceful, I think we're now a better place to see that across the broad continuum of Chinese history, there was often Chinese expansionism. Um, major states, one can think of Han China, uh, Tang China, one can think of the Manchu dynasty in the late 17th and 18th centuries, and one might say the uh, aspirations, pretensions, whatever you want to call them, of the Chinese communist state today. And what that does is then redirects attention to past practices of Chinese behavior in what you might call border zones, Xinjiang, Tibet, um, the Amur Valley, and indeed offshore, um, uh, what you might call border zones, Taiwan and further afield, further sea, I should say. So I would say that if you're now looking at Eurasian geopolitics in historical terms and in present day terms, the Mackinder model, whilst it had its value in its day, um, now looks distinctly limited because of its writing down or writing out of China out of the pattern. You also have an a, a interesting discussion in the book about uh, Edward Lutwak's um, grand strategy of the Roman Empire. Uh, what do you think of uh, his treatment of the concept? Well, I think I think first of all he has been enormously important in trying to do two things. One, in trying to bridge the subjects of strategy and geopolitics, particularly if you like strategy and historical geopolitics. And secondly, in his use of what one might call the diachronic method. Diachronic method is uh, comparisons across time as opposed to comparisons within a period of time. So in a way, Lutvok is essentially writing about, and as you know, he wrote the Grand Strategy of the Roman Empire, wrote also a very interesting book on the Grand Strategy of the Byzantine Empire. And in a sense, he's using a lot of the ideas and vocabulary that came from his work on the geopolitics of the Cold War. Now, this is both helpful, but also suffers from, and this is not a criticism, this is an observation, all historical work proceeds in, a, in terms of the parameters of what is possible, but it suffers from the issue of trying to understand Roman conceptualizations, and one could make the same thing of Byzantine or the Cold War or today, conceptualizations of what one means by uh, territory, space, control, anxiety, fear, the support of the deities, providential, providentialism, prestige, etc., etc., etc. So in other words, there is a degree to which he offers a diachronic rationalization of what might often have been culturally more specific and different. And I would argue the same thing is true of a lot of modern writers on geopolitics, People, I mean, I would say the same thing is true of Kaplan, for example, uh, who's written quite extensively, including of the Indian Ocean, but really doesn't understand anything much about the ideologies of Indian Ocean societies. So I think that what one needs to have is both an awareness of geography, but an understanding that geography is a human phenomenon and spacing, one in which perception is significant alongside uh, what you might regard as inherent physical realities. So in other words, 
we're talking in part about the tension between what the French in the 1930s thought of as possibilism and determinism, with French writers arguing that, deter- that uh, classic geopoliticians uh, like Haushofer were determinists, whereas what they were looking at was a possible relationship between the human and the physical environments. And I think that is a pertinent approach. So that is one element of it. But there is also the element of it that all too many people writing about a subject seek to dictate some universal rule, which what a surprise is their approach. So you get lots of crude and stupid remarks at the moment about putting the geography back into it as if the geography never was there. I mean, the geography was always there in people's analysis. They didn't necessarily articulate it in a particularly um, sophisticated fashion, or they didn't necessarily articulate it at all. But that didn't mean it didn't play a role, subliminal or otherwise, in terms of the use of vocabulary such as containment, or in terms of value-added remarks such as defensive or offensive, aggressive, or whatever. Uh, Yes. Um, Does... um... Uh, geopolitics explain, for example, why the Manchu—I'm sorry—the um, Mongols failed to conquer Egypt in the 13th century. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you know, one way of looking at Mongol expansionism is, in fact, as you say, to make a sort of comments about. Um, Uh, the physical environment. So, for example, to argue that they were able to operate successfully in 1241 into Hungary and Poland in essentially steppe land extension campaigns in which they defeated uh, the feudal aristocracy of cavalry armies of both of those, but that the Mongols then found it more difficult um, uh, to operate in the mountainous area of modern-day Croatia. And an analogue of that is to say, of course, that the Mongols eventually successfully conquered uh, China, but were unable to prevail once they tried, as they did twice, to 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 attack Japan. So that's one effect, one one respect, which is to argue, as you just suggested, for the primacy of uh, of uh, physical geography. But I think there are other factors as well. I mean, if you're looking at um, Egypt, as you will know, there were some spectacular defeats of Mongol forces, Ain Jalat in 1260 as a classic example, by the Mamluks. And I would put it to you that um, the Mamluks essentially were in their own way, like the Mongols, an effective military system and that you shouldn't necessarily presuppose that there was a reason and in a sense of running against some gradient of physical success, which established that the Mongols would succeed so far. In other words, let's say overrunning the Abbasid Caliphate of, um, of Iraq uh, in capturing Baghdad in 1258, but not being able to press on successfully against the Mamluks. I'd be wary of that. I mean, I'm, a, I, you know, I'm, it, I'm a multi-dimensional approach to the past. People sometimes complain that um, I won't come up, won't come out with some single unifying factor. Well, I suppose my single unifying factor is multi-dimensional. It's to urge people to think that um, there isn't a one-way pattern of influence. So I think geopolitics should be very much part of the equation, but I don't think it should be understood in a deterministic fashion. So in other words, my first point is criticizing a lot of the current historical 
uh, profession and literature. But my second point is saying, yes, but we shouldn't take it as far as saying this is a single account and that some of the, shall we say, rather glib writing, particularly in your country, I have to tell you, um, on, on geopolitics is rather facile and silly. <laughs> point well taken. Uh, I'm quite prepared to agree with that, at least in terms of the United States. Uh, you say in the book, quote, because of geography, southern Italy and Sicily were difficult to control, unquote. Uh, how so? Well, again, that's a very interesting question. I suppose it depends. I mean, I haven't. I last read this book about five years ago, <laughs> but, uh, so I can't remember the exact context. But I, if, if I would make the general point, um, what you've got in both southern Italy and Sicily is a is a physical environment in which the interior is often uh, uh, with a, a terrain, a topography that is a matter of mountain ranges, deep river valleys, um, isolated hilltop towns, so physically very difficult to control. In terms of the coastal environment, if you're looking at southern Italy, it looks both eastwards across the Adriatic to uh, what we would now have as Albania, Greece, uh, Croatia and Montenegro, all of which have been the sources of invasions of southern Italy, whether you're thinking of um, Pyrrhus, King of Epirus, or whether you're thinking of uh, the Ottomans in Otranto, etc., etc. But equally, uh, there have been the possibilities of invasions from the south, from the direction of what would now be Tunisia. And, you know, I've been to Trapani and standing at Trapani and looking across, you know, you're not looking very far before you get to uh, to Africa. And you can think most famously of Carthage, for example, and its epic struggle with uh, Rome in the First Punic War. And then, of course, you have also looking northwards from northern Sicily on Palermo or looking westwards from Naples, northwestwards from Naples. You're looking towards, for example, France and Angevin influence. Um, you're looking towards uh, uh, Catalonia and Aragonese influence. You're looking northwards to Genoa. It's, so you're looking at a variety of areas of expansion. And that, of course, has made it very difficult for any one power to prevail for any length of time there, though it doesn't make it impossible, let's put it like that, but it does make it difficult. Um, but, you know, eventually, um, after the First Punic War, that whole area was under the control of Rome until the 5th century, until the Vandals um, arrived and started raiding from modern-day Tunisia. Um, so it doesn't make it impossible. So again, we're back to that dichotomy between possibilism and determinism. Uh, what, if any, could be said to be the geopolitics of the partition of Poland in the 18th century? Gosh, you really throw me these questions. <laughs> just to tell the listeners, none of these questions did I know coming. Um, well, I suppose if one's thinking about the three partitions, so just to remind listeners, that's between 1772 and 1795, and Poland is partitioned by Prussia, Austria, and Russia. One of the things that helps the partitioning powers um, is that there are no, as it were, whatever we might consider natural boundaries for Poland, or more particularly, because a natural boundary is often a matter of, uh, of uh, rhetoric or propaganda, there are no particular constraints on the abilities of those neighbouring powers to project their strength into Poland. So that, I think, is, uh, is very significant. Um, 
I mean, but I think ultimately it's a question of the geopolitics. Poland in 1772 uh, has no allies. Um, I mean, the French are willing to make noises saying this is a terrible thing, but they don't do anything. And it ought to be said that when the Russians invaded, invaded Poland in 1733-1734, the French had sent a small expeditionary force to Danzig, Gdansk, and that had been a dismal failure. Um, and Poland, of course, regains independence under Napoleon, uh, but in a way, that then means that the Poles simply die in large numbers to satisfy French foreign policy, whether in Spain or Russia. And in the end, you get what in effect is the fourth partition of Poland in 1814-15. And as you know, you're going to get a fifth partition of Poland in 1939. Um, so Poland has got some really significant problems unless it has a powerful ally to help, to help it, which is one of the importance at the moment of NATO. And it's one of the reasons why Polish politicians of all political stripes are concerned about what they see as, you know, German willingness to be too chummy to Russia. Point well taken. When did maps become important in European military operations? Right. Um, here again, we could do a complete podcast. Tactical, operational and strategic levels. Um, so in tactical terms, I would argue that the, the man on the ground, I'm not trying to be gender specific here, it always was men who were commanders on the ground. The man on, the man on the ground is still in a way more important than the map really into the 19th century because of the difficulties of expressing contouring or relative height on the, on maps and the effect that most maps are, don't give you a detailed enough grasp of the very immediate nature of the ground. So I would say that doesn't really change till the 19th century. As far as operational characteristics, i.e., uh, you know, how do we dodge the Alps if we're if we want to invade uh, France or go the other way into into Piedmont, uh, then maps are quite useful earlier on, uh, particularly if they're intending to convey uh, information to people who are seeking to make a decision at a distance. Um, and there I would say that maps are going to help you certainly from the 16th, more particularly the 17th century onwards, but certainly the 16th century. And the um, the sort of sophistication of operational mapping, the ability to cover the terrain increases with time um, and also obviously increases with the extent to which commanders are used and more used to looking at maps. So by the time you've got to Napoleon, he's regularly accompanied by somebody holding maps out for him. Um, and he's very much used to that as the idea and ideal of command. As far as strategic uh, mapping is concerned, um, if you're thinking of that at a sort of um, you know, let us say here we are sitting in London in 1762 and we're going to send or encourage the sending of an expedition from Madras, Chennai to Manila. It does help if you have a map of the world showing you that where Manila is, you know, the British were at war with Spain in 1762. Uh, so a map is necessary at that point. So, yes, I would say maps become more consequential. Obviously, they, the ability to use them is in part also to do with production. So in part, it's to do with the, the um, spread of the printing press and the extent to which um, by the late 16th century, a significant number of maps are being printed 
by uh, including maps by people like Mercator. And of course, there are projections available. I mean, he's the most famous one for the 16th century, which uh, uh, enable you to, uh, as it were, to try and understand the world. Now, as you will know, uh, the world is a sphere. In fact, it's slightly squashed at each pole, but let's just say it's a sphere. So any map, which is an approximation on two dimensions, doesn't matter whether the form you're looking at it is papyrus print or computer screen. Any map is necessarily an abstraction and distortion at two dimensions of something that is a sphere at three dimensions. So you're always going to compromise either equal area space or direction, directional integrity. Um, the essential way of doing it in the 16th century was to compromise the equal area space and to emphasize directional integrity. And that actually is the element that's most useful for commanders, both at sea and on land. So in, in actual fact, because as you know better than I do, this there is some, um, not dispute, but there's a certain argumentation, which is that the distortions of the, the uh, Mercator uh, globe are uh, evidence, as per this argument, which I, I myself find uh, uh, facetious and uh, inaccurate, of a certain European supremacy or hegemonic um, ideology. Do you agree or not with that uh, particular mode of argument? Oh, no, that's been before. And incidentally, I mean, that discussion at some length in my book, Maps um, and Politics, it's a deeply flawed one. As I've just tried to explain, um, there is inevitably a loss if you're moving from three dimensions to two dimensions. You shouldn't assume that that is to do with some kind of sinister conspiracy of white men sitting in some bunker under the White House. Um, there is always a problem. I mean, in, in essence, um, what you're going to do is have problems about how to assess and how to present, as you know, I, I did discuss this in my book, um, elements like Greenland is most likely to be distorted if you use one projection rather than another. And I'm not sure that anybody's yet tried to satisfactorily explain how Greenland is trying to run the world. So no, I think that um, you're thinking of the Peters map and, and the debate over that. Well, I mean, Peters himself was rather unoriginal. There are long established debates about how best to present uh, maps and the what I would argue is that one needs to focus on what I call fitness for purpose. What is the intention of that map? In other words, are you most concerned to uh, see um, correct navigational routing to, to use that you can then use with compasses in temperate, um, in temperate uh, parts of the world? Is that your main intention? In which case you will use a different projection to if you're trying to allocate land for um, uh, political purposes in, say, Uganda near the equator. Um, so a lot of it should, should be regarded as uh, fit for purpose. And I mean, I edited a, uh, an Atlas of World History, the Dorling Kindersley one. And when you've actually got the practical problems of deciding how best to display information uh, on a variety of scales and of a variety of uh, purposes, you're not sitting there in some conspiratorial tone. You're trying to think what is best going to present the kind of information I'm trying to offer. So let me give you an example, something which I discussed, I think, in my book, um, Rethinking Military History. Let me give you an example. Indian history 
of the 18th century. Now, the standard map of India for that period, you can see it, for example, in the New Cambridge Modern History Atlas, the volume that goes with the that, um, is as it were north to south. In other words, north is at the top of the map. And if you wish to be conspiratorial, I personally don't find this terribly helpful. What that then means is India appears as vulnerable to people that are attacking it from overseas to wit the Europeans. So, you know, the Brits into Bengal or the, the Brits and the French into the Carnatic, etc. And what I thought was a more helpful way to look at India was, in fact, to look at the principal way of in which it had to protect itself from foreign invasion and also experienced foreign invasion. And that is with the Axis coming from Afghanistan through the Khyber Pass uh, across the Indus into Hindustan, into northern India. So in other words, what you would do is you would have the map orientated with, uh, as it were, the bottom, the direction of a movement uh, being in Afghanistan. Uh, the top uh, would be uh, near Delhi, uh, and where, of course, the big battles, whether you're thinking of First Panipat in 1526 or Karnal in 1739 or Third Panipat in 1761, um, in which those are Mughal, Persian and uh, Afghan invasions. Uh, but one might just as well go flip back and think of Alexander the Great, for example. You would see that as the prime axis of activity. And equally, if you wanted to go back, you could look at powers based in northern India, the uh, Mughals by the late 17th century in the 1640s, for example, had operated into Afghanistan in the 1630s. They besieged Kandahar, etc., etc., etc. So it's a two way process. And, um, and that gives you a different feel. It doesn't mean that one is right and the other is wrong. This is the point. It is simpletons that I'm not saying you're taking that approach. But I'm saying that a hell of a lot of the people that write in this conspiratorial tone and they then talk to their students about it as if they've suddenly discovered things and then they go on about decolonizing the syllabus. You're talking about fundamentally very low grade people here as academics who don't seem to understand that there is no correct answer, that there are different ways of interpreting the past, that you have to introduce people to the complexities of that interpretation and you introduce them to those complexities without implying that if somebody has a view that you don't share, they are therefore part and parcel of some grave conspiracy. What in the name of merciful heavens is uh, radical geopolitics? Ah, right. Well, radical geopolitics, I, you know, I, I've written about a bit in that book. I think I've written a bit about it in another book. Um, radical geopolitics is a kind of notion which developed as part of the sort of radical geography of the late 20th century, which argued, just as geography of that period argued, that geography was essentially a cover for, um, you know, capitalism, Western dominance, etc., etc. So they argued the same thing about geopolitics. And they argued that you needed to stand it on its head and to reveal that geopolitics as a whole was a product of, you know, Western values, capitalism, etc., etc., etc. And they were going to uh, present... Um, the subject accordingly. Now, I quoted from them and discussed it in this book, and I think also in my Maps and Politics. I mean, again, it, it refers to what I was saying earlier. The problem with it um, is it's very much a, a simpleton's approach. It's very powerful in the profession. Geography has, if anything, become even more t taken over by wokeism 
than the subject of academic history. Um, but it's very powerful in the profession, but it doesn't particularly help you because it doesn't help you to deal with the complexity of the world, nor, I mean, we were talking earlier about China. I mean, you know, if you're going to present a world in which you think all villainy sits somewhere between Wall Street and the Pentagon, it doesn't really help you to deal with a world in which there are other powers, other forces, other elements of, the, of assertion and assertiveness. So um, I'm afraid in some respects it's very dominant, but also looks horribly dated and very silly. And the sad thing is, I mean, this is what's really sad, that so many students who go into university uh, with relatively open-minded or maybe nothing particularly in their mind, I don't know, you take your own viewpoint, um, are fed what's really very low-grade stuff, which can only be regarded as indoctrination. Point well taken. What, if any, were the geopolitical dimensions of Manchu China's failed invasion of what is today Vietnam in the late 18th century, as opposed to uh, its successful conquests of Tibet and Sienking in the same century? Ah, right. Well, um, I can refer to my books there. I did a book on 18th century warfare. I've done several, but the latest one is very much on the world level. So there are several ways you can look at it. One way you can look at it is to say this. The uh, the Manchu failed, as you've said, in Vietnam in the late 1780s and on an even larger scale in Burma, Myanmar, in the late 1760s. Is this to do with problems of physical environment, to wit, um, forested uplands, which are particularly unsuited to Manchu cavalry, and on top of that, nasty diseases, um, nasty diseases affecting both the animals, but also human beings, as in particular was a problem, in fact, in the Burma campaigns. Um, so is it physical geography that is the key element, or is it um, the fact that um, the ideology of the Manchu, who were a, originally from you know, modern area of Yurchen, the area of modern area of Manchuria, and who were essentially, for want of a better word, steppe. I think one can one has to always use that term with some caution. Um, and they were more concerned with. Um, struggles over dominance of Mongolia and over struggles uh, and over Tibet, and that that broadened on, broadened out because of the expansionist um, uh, uh, struggle they found themselves in and the enemies they found themselves in. That broadened out into the uh, into the attempt to take over Sinkiang and, in fact, to go further west to Kashgar. Now, if you're looking at the latter, what you're emphasising is a struggle for primacy among steppe people. You're also arguing with a specific case of uh, Tibet, different tensions in religious terms, which are quite significant. Um, and you're also arguing about the notions of dynastic uh, pride and legitimacy, and in particular, the way in which the Kangxi and the Quinlong emperors very much saw their roles as warriors. Um, so the Kangxi Emperor, for example, went north campaigning in the 1690s against the Zungar in what is modern day Mongolia. Um, you know, that, that was not what you were going to do to go to Burma. Um, but I think you'd be better placed not to go for one or the other. I think you'd be better placed to go for both myself. Um, if you want to take it further, you can look at the problems that the 
Ming had in uh, Vietnam in the 1420s, 1430s, and point out that um, they, they, in other words, that the, the Ming were a non-step dynasty. They still had problems, but it, to do that, it also risks underrating the extent to which both in modern, what we would call Vietnam, they didn't use that term, then, both in Vietnam and in Burma, uh, the Chinese were up against quite significant forces of their own. I mean, Burma itself, for example, was an expansionist power uh, expanding into t- uh, to modern day Thailand in that period. Um, Vietnam in the 1780s, um, a rather useless figure who had been a Chinese client had been kicked out by an expansionist new movement. Um, So in other words, one always has to factor into it and into any attempt at discussing people vis-a-vis the environment, the strength of the opponent you were up against. Uh, Very good. And uh, why um, in the book you, you say, quote, Geopolitics are, quote, nonlinear in nature, unquote. Why is that? Well, again, I can't remember the context in which I wrote things. But, I mean, what I would argue is that just because you can establish a pattern of influence for, shall we say, um, let's say if we were thinking about uh, the geopolitics of the Cold War, the fact that you might be able to establish a pattern of influence and an alignment that helps to explain um, the orientation of alliances and the disposal of military forces in, shall, shall we say, 1955, doesn't demonstrate what's going to happen in 1956. Um, so that's one element, I would argue. In other words, I would very much argue that we've got to go for the specific. Now, locating that in the discussion of geopolitics, I'm saying, in other words, that geopolitics counts is important, but that it is not helped by these broad brush synoptic studies which say oh you know in one phrase the geopolitics of the cold war or the geopolitics of the modern world and try and explain everything by that i find i find that really limited and limiting um and i think that what the scholar can supply unless these days the scholar has to supply it as much against the idiocies of the academic profession as the stupidities of non-academics um but what the scholar can supply is an extent to say no what we have to do is to understand that this is complicated, understand it's multidimensional, and understand we have to put the work into thinking this one through. What were the variables that led geopolitics to become a distinct subject at the end of the 19th century? Oh, well, that's a very interesting one to do. In part, it's to do with intellectual history. I think I've got a chapter on all of that in my book. In part, it's to do with intellectual history of that period, the notion of kind of social Darwinianism, competition between um, uh, between peoples, um, the way in which this competition was seen in a organic fashion as if and therefore this organic fashion led to an attempt to understand human beings with reference to their particular physical environment. So Ratzel, for example, and his Swedish equivalent, whose name I always find difficult to pronounce, um, were very much interested in the idea of what you might call blood and soil politics. Um, And as I said, there was a French equivalent and the French were much more, I would say, subtle in their use of the notion. Then there is the idea as well of trying to shape 
an assessment of a changing world with its new technologies, and the particular one Mackinder is fascinated by is transcontinental railways, and he, of course, is interested in the idea that the the Trans-Siberian Railway in particular is reshaping Eurasia, and as he puts it, will lead to an end of the Columbian moment or Columbian age. So in other words, there'd been a primacy of the sea from, in his terms, from the 15th century to the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th. And now with railways such as the Trans-Siberian or the uh, Transcontinental in North America or Cecil Rhodes projected Cairo to the Cape, the situation is changing. And as you may know, in that um, uh, debate, sorry, lecture in which he introduced this at the London School of Economics. Uh, there was a sort of discussion afterwards, and Leo Amory, then a very young journalist, piped up and said, well, what about aircraft, which was very prescient as, as the White Brothers had only <laughs> taken off a few months earlier. And um, indeed, um, I mean, Mackinder was better at assertion than he was at uh, a, 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 at analysis of what was going to happen. Um, I mean, his his hinge power, as it were, was um, uh, in a sense to be Russia. And one of the interesting things is obviously Russia lost World War One, but then also Russian communism was contained in the 1920s and 1930s, and it was only a combination of Hitler and American passivity that let uh, that let Russia and Germany out of the bag um, uh, between 1939 and 1941. Um, so I think that um, I should have said out of the box, and I'm tired. I'm sorry. I've been up watching your exciting countries' elections, um, but the the, which are held very inconveniently for Western viewers in, in, in Britain. So could we not retime the American election so as to please British viewers? This seems so obvious, Charles. I'm surprised it isn't a campaign on the other side of the Atlantic. Anyway, going back, um, I think that those two factors are both very important for the late 19th century, plus also an attempt, as it were, to provide a set of rules. I mean, it's an, a, it's an age obsessed with kind of applying the lessons from the physical sciences, the lessons of methodology to the social sciences. So geopolitics provides a nice, apparently scientific way to look at world politics and world political development and to use the term evolution, because all of that is deeply suspect. How would you characterize uh, Sir Halford Mackinder's uh, active career as a geopolitician? Well, he goes on for a long... There's a very good work on Mackinder. The best, I would say, is my friend Brian Bluet, who's at uh, William & Mary. He's written some very interesting stuff. But there are other people that have written on Mackinder as well. Um, first of all, he wasn't always terribly good at it in practice. As you may know, he was the... British High Commissioner to South Russia after uh, World War One. He was one of the great advocates of intervention in uh, in Russia um, and in the Caucasus. And the point is that whilst communism clearly was disastrous in world historical terms and Soviet expansionism was to be awful, um, there is no two ways about it that trying to prop up the whites to... Uh, be the dominant power in Russia in 1919, 1920, 1921 was not viable. 
So he didn't do very well. He came back, he, you know, he talked to the cabinet. He, as you know, member of parliament, had been a member of parliament. Uh, he was a man of influence and connections. But I think it's fair to say that he proved better as a writer. Um, and his real period of prime was the Edwardian period, rather than as a um, somebody of destiny, so-called inverted commas. In other words, he was an MP, but he never became terribly significant in political terms. Um, in the interwar period, he became important in sort of shipping, um, shipping allocation, um, which he did a good job. He went on writing because he wrote in the 1940s uh, during World War II, but I wouldn't myself say that um, that his his facility at rising through the academic hierarchy, I mean, he becomes director of the LSE, was not matched by his uh, analysis of um, world developments. Let's just put it like that. What were the geopolitics of what you refer to in the book as navalism? Right. Well, I was when I was talking about navalism, I was talking in particular about that. Uh, when I was talking about navalism, I was talking in particular about the late 19th century uh, interest, of which Mahan in particular took to the fore, and the I, the notion that um, the modern navy, powered by uh, steam, um, with its um, steel uh, warships was going to be capable of projecting power as sail wooden navies had not been earlier, and that navalism was going to then provide protection for trade, oceanic trade, which would enable those powers, and you find navalists in particular in Britain, the United States, but also in the Tirpit Circle in Germany and, of course, in Japan, that those powers that are able, quote, to dominate uh, trade routes are going to be those best placed to uh, be the, the major powers. And you could argue that that's in part one of the interests in Chinese geopolitics at the present moment, that, a lot, that there is a navalism that's clearly there or playing a role in Chinese policymaking. I'm not saying it's the only element, but it's clearly pay, playing a role. And I mean, I think that that helps to give you a particular significance to a navalism in the late 19th century, but B, also to the strategies of those powers that think about how best to attack what seems to be the prime naval power. So in the case of uh, the British, for example, you get the Genicole in France in the 1880s, people like Aube, who are arguing that they France should not focus on um, battleships, it should focus on uh, lighter cruisers that are going to be faster and able to raid British commerce. Uh, you get the interest and cult of the torpedo boat in the 1880s, 1890s, the idea that battleships can be attacked by torpedo boats, which are going to be uh, operating from behind smoke screens. Um, you get the same interest in the so-called torpedo destroyers. And then from World War One onwards, you get the interest in... Um, uh, first in uh, submarines and then subsequently in shore-based and then marine-based uh, aircraft as well. 
So navalism itself helps to play, not surprisingly, a key role in different ideas of naval strategy and different ideas of anti-prime uh, power. But in terms of geopolitics, it also helps to mean uh, a great concern for, in the late 19th century, the distribution of coaling stations, the control over the Suez and Panama canals, uh, and in the 19th, sorry, and in the early 20th century, increased concern, as also with aircraft and tanks, in the disposal and control of oil supplies, because obviously uh, shipping moves over to be um, oil-fired uh, rather than coal-fired, and that therefore means that you have again to think about the geopolitics of oil supplies. What was the relationship between geopolitics and the Third Reich? Well, that's really interesting. Um, if you look at World War II, um, as you may know, the Allies produced propaganda. I've written about it in my 100 maps of World War II, which Chicago have just brought out. And they basically argued that Haushofer's Academy, as they put it, in Munich, was where the Nazi plans for world domination had been drawn up. And they argued that Hitler was giving effect to older geopolitical ideas. Now, that's interesting. Um, as with everything, one has to think about specifics here. Um, Haushofer himself, obviously, was decorated by the Nazis. Uh, he was close to Rudolf Hess. Uh, but Haushofer, like uh, those in his circle, and he'd been an artillery, senior artillery officer in World War I, conservative, well, that's being polite. Uh, I think he was really rather right wing. Um, uh, Haushofer was a revisionist against, against the Versailles peace settlement, but he didn't buy into Hitler's racist um, sort of nirvana. And he himself uh, was disinclined very much to, uh, to endorse the idea of war with the Soviet Union. Um, he was put into disgrace um, and, in fact, finally sent to Dachau um, because, of course, Hess flew to Britain and Haushofer took a lot of the blame for that being regarded as Hess, Hess's idea man. I think that actually exaggerates his influence. And Haushofer's only son, Albrecht, um, was shot by the, the Germans, sorry, shot by the Nazis. Um, so I think one's got to be a little warier. I mean, I think Hitler had geopolitical notions. I think that they were not not coterminous with those of some of the more prominent uh, right wing geopoliticians of the 20s and 30s who tended to be more national and less racist in their inflection. Uh, what um, I'm sorry. Why did the subject of geopolitics decline in the post-1945 period as an academic subject? Well, I would argue that it declined in formal terms because it was associated through Haushofer with the Third Reich and that this discredited it in Germany, but more particularly it discredited it in the United States. But I would then look for broader characteristics. It's part of a... Uh, a move against geography as a subject in the United States, um, more particularly in universities or most universities, particularly the Ivy League, um, in the late 40s and 50s. So I think that's very significant. It's part of a 
a, a rejigging of the nature of um, the social sciences. But ironically, what I would suggest is, is here you get an example of the disjuncture between academe and the wider world, because what I would put it to you is that if you're thinking about people like Kennan and containment, or you're thinking about notions such as the domino theory, or you're thinking about debates over rollback, if you're thinking about questions about, you know, the British, for example, uh, we move out of Suez in 1954, um, that means we've got to put more of an emphasis on Cyprus and Aden and people looking at the distances through which, through which um, manned bombers can drop atom bombs, etc., etc. I would argue that geopolitics was very important in international relations and defense thought in the late 40s, 50s, 60s. The fact that the academics were devoting very little attention tells you more about the academics than it tells you about the real world. And I would say the same today. Uh, why do you regard Henry Kissinger in his past career as a geopolitician? As per the Ferguson biography, geopolitics does not really appear in the book. Yes, I don't see those as uh, incompatible. As I've said, I think you can be a geopolitician without using the formal rhetoric of geopolitics. Uh, I, I, mean, I would like to think that I do that. Um, not that I've got the same quality as Henry Kissinger, though, of course, uh, he was a professor of history as I was. Um, the, uh, he was, as you know, was originally a Metternich man, not, not a million miles away from where I started. Um, so what would I say about Kissinger? I would say that Kissinger is classically and would have seen himself as a realist, capital R, I mean, in terms of that intellectual tradition, as well as small r. And I would say that realists as a whole are very strongly imbued with geopolitical ideas. They just may not articulate them as a, as a formed, as a formed uh, concept, let alone ideology. How do the differing works of Samuel Huntington and Francis Fukuyama have a uh, political, I'm sorry, have a geopolitical aspect? Well, Huntington in particular, um, locates geographically the cultures that he saw as in rivalry. Now, that's an interesting, very interesting question, Charles, because you could suggest that actually one of the effects of large-scale immigration in the world has been to lessen um, the applicability of this. So if you're taking Western Europe, for example, I think I'm right in saying about 9% of the French population is of, um, of uh, Islamic uh, origin or, uh, or identity. And so this makes it slightly less clear that there is the, where the geopolitical boundary, if you like, is compared to the situation in 1830 when the French, as you know, sent an expeditionary force that began their commitment to Algeria. So, I mean, Huntington had an inherent notion of competitive blocks. And I, and, I, and I do discuss that in the war, uh, in the book. I do think that underplays tension within the blocks. I mean, for every 50-year period of Islamic history, more Muslims have been killed by other Muslims than have ever been killed by non-Muslims. Um, so, you know, I don't think that was something that was really brought out either by Huntington or by those who uh, wrote about him and commented on him. Okay, that's absolutely fine. Um, uh, Fukuyama, of course, uh, produces this essay, and I think it's fair to say that 
as with the Mackinder 1904 piece or the Michael Roberts lecture about the military revolution in 1955, uh, these were essentially relatively slim pieces and they were given, I would argue, disproportionate attention, uh, which they didn't deserve. Um, uh, uh, Fukuyama, of course, went on to publish his work in book length, The End of History and the Last Man, which I think is 1992. Um, I mean, obviously, it's very easy to point out that, you know, the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. Well, I mean, obviously, that's ridiculous. Um, but he did actually then cover himself with some caveats. I mean, he wrote, uh, clearly, the vast bulk of the third world remains very much mired in history and will be a terrain of conflict for many years to come, uh, which is one way to think about it. I think one could rephrase that. Um, and uh, But, I mean, what I would say is that Fukuyama proved more conducive to American commentators arguing that American norms and power defined or should define the world than it did to those people thinking um, uh, in a perceptive way. I mean, it was already pretty obvious um, uh, when, when his book came out that there hadn't been this this triumph that he that he. Uh, that he saw that the world was, you know, much more complex, even in 1992. Um, and the way in which the Soviet Union did not change into a benign uh, pro-Western, uh, pro-capitalist system was already fairly obvious that it was going to go in, in you know, in a direction that he wasn't asserting. Uh, um, so... And, you know, we soon after to see the strength of ethnic, religious and re regional animosities in the former Yugoslavia, the former Caucasus, um, the area around Rwanda and Burundi, etc., 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 Somalia, all of those are early 1990s. So I think it was uh, very flawed. But again, what you've got is you've got a political scientist writing journalism in some superficial American periodical. I mean, there are many superficial British ones, let me make it clear. Um, and it's not surprising that it's deeply flawed. I mean, the point is that um, it, it worked. It was easy and simple and people wanted something that was easy and simple. What explains the uh, surge of interest in geopolitics in the last 25 to 30 years? Well, I think people have been uh, trying to find some other explanation. I think that's number one. Two, I think they're less easy about discussing things in terms of ideologies and cultures, uh, which are also... Uh, politically rather questionable ways to make your career if you use cultural terms. Three, they provides a way to discuss and analyze China. Four, it provides a way to look at the China-America um, relationship. Five, um, every journalist who's got nothing else to do can make themselves appear profound by waving around a map or writing about geopolitics. And six, it's superficially facile and easy. <laughs> Point well taken. Uh, what, um, I'm sorry, how does the rise of China underline weaknesses in Sir Alfred Mackinder's original thesis? Well, he didn't really have China as part of his 
as part of the the setup there it really wasn't he wasn't thinking in those terms i mean and indeed his three major players in what we would call asia were russia japan and india as part of the british empire and you know it rather got it wrong actually uh, not to make too fine a point about it i mean japan in 1904-1905, uh, defeated Russia in Manchuria. It had already defeated China in the Sino-Japanese uh, War of 1894-95. It had already taken over Taiwan. It was becoming powerful in Korea, etc. Um, as we know, by 1945, uh, in 1945, I should say, Japan loses completely its continental land empire in Europe. So that's completely uh, in by the end of 1948, uh, the British Empire in Asia still exists, but it's in uh, Malaya, it's in Aden, you know, it's lost um, uh, Pakistan, India, Burma and uh, Ceylon. So you know, in many senses, uh, Mackinder is very, very, very much short term. And I would say um, you've got a classic problem of somebody without really a historicist sense. I think that's the problem. You know, he tried to be, uh, you know, you, you've all, we've all read these books, you know, as well as I do. You write that you read this stuff written by some uh, political science person in which they throw in a smattering of history to try and give themselves some veracity by appearing to represent the rules uh, propounded through hundreds of years, if not millennia. But the fact of the matter is their historical reading is flawed and simple, um, usually uh, monodimensional, and it then is used to substantiate apparently some very, very dubious and only short-term set of propositions about the present. Well, there's Mackinder for you. And there is a lot of writing, I'm afraid to say, in the political science field. It's no wonder people keep me away from conferences making remarks like that, isn't it? <laughs> All I can say in terms of your comments about political science is alleluia. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, why is, quote, now this is the last, last time I'm going to quote something from you from the book, why is the, quote, extent that classical geopolitical theory is still valid for the post-Cold War period problematic, unquote? Well, um, again, I can't remember the exact context of the quote. Um, what I would say is that some of the ideas or the vocabulary are still useful, but the context within which they were brought to the fore, both the international context the technological context, so I shouldn't be using both, the international context, the technological context, and the context in the sense of views about the proper use of power within the major states, certainly uh, some of the major states, not all of them, those have all changed. So that in many senses, when people were writing about or thinking about or conceptualizing geopolitics in the 1950s and 60s, they were doing so in the shadow of, the of World War II. So they were using ideas about appeasement in Munich, 
uh, or for that matter, if they were Soviet about the surprise attack on the Soviet Union in 1941. And they were using those in order as, as part of their mental equipment for thinking about the challenges or conceptualizing the or at least debating or rhetorically politicizing the challenges of the present day, the then present day. But I would say now we're in a very different set of historical paradigms and that therefore the Cold War ones are less valid. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Oh, that geopolitics is important, but like my book on strategy, you've got to do the thought work. Everybody's capable of it. This is not hard. Just don't take the glib and facile line that is offered by so many commentators and instead realize that there's complexity, that influences move in different directions, and that that is what makes these subjects both important but also interesting. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.